deeper and deeper into my soul, into who I was, to the point where I could really understand who I am. I'm really grateful to Pan for his skill set, his empathy, his experience. To condense it into actionable pieces that I could fit the whole thing in my head, um, this workshop was really helpful. everyone and welcome to 360 Wisdom Speaks. Our guest today calling in beautiful BC, Canada, Vancouver. Oh my gosh, is Candace Plator. And she's got something special to share today. But before we get into it, Nicole is going to read a short bio so we can get a little bit of description of who Candace is. Candace is an addictions therapist in private practice where she specializes in working with a family and other loved ones of people who are struggling with addiction. In her unique and signature family addiction counseling and therapy program, as a former opioid addict with 34 years clean and sober, Candace has learned that overcoming addiction is a family condition. Everyone in the family is affected by addiction and everyone needs to heal. Welcome, Candace. Thank you. Hi, everyone. It is so great to have you here. And you know, addiction you. comes in so many forms, right? And it comes at different periods of your life for different events that are going on, right? And oh my mm -hmm. goodness, these last couple of years with everything upside down, inside out, topsy-turvy, it's like, wow, it's been even more prevalent. So yeah. can you share with the audience, you know, how you work with the families in this addiction? Because that's something that you don't hear much about, right? Right. And you don't hear much about it because unfortunately there are very few resources, very few services for the people who are struggling right alongside the addicts in the family. So, and everybody needs the help. So um, it's really important for the family to be able to have some support and also some guidance and education around addiction because they generally have no idea what to do in this situation. So, you know, when people come to me in my practice, they say to me, we, we're just tearing our hair out. We just don't know what to do, help. And what I find is that there are often um, patterns of behavior that are happening within a family that are assisting, I don't wanna say helping, but assisting an addict to stay stuck in the addiction. And so what the family members need to learn is how to change their own behaviors, what it is that they might be doing that's causing unintended damage with the addict and, and start helping instead of what we call enabling. Yeah, that, that makes perfectly good sense. And that's, you know, so true with a lot of things that we enable because we don't want to hurt the other person, right? We don't want to make them feel less than, and it's like, like you say, you don't know what to do. 
Yeah. And, and, and I'm sure with, you know, especially with some addictions, depending on what those addictions are, that there's personality shifting, right? That if they're not getting their allotment of that addiction, that anger and all kinds of things could, could happen. And how yeah. does, how does one deal with that as a family member, if they're living under the same roof? Yeah, especially if they're living under the same roof. It happens even when you're not living under the same roof, but you're seeing each other sometimes in person or on Zoom, as has been the case uh, in these last couple of crazy years. Um, so there are many reasons for why family members enable addicts. And I'm, I'm a real proponent of very simple definitions uh, for many things, but my definition of enabling is when we do for someone else what they can do and should do for themselves. And should isn't a word I use too often, but what they can do and what they should do for themselves. And loved ones, family members often do that for addicts on a fairly consistent basis especially if they're living in the same home. And as I say, there's a lot of reasons for that. And one of them is they don't want to have to deal with, they don't want to have to face the anger that happens within an addict if they don't get what they want. And sometimes, oh, yeah. sometimes that, um, that pattern has been set up for over a number of years that this person kind of feels somewhat entitled or maybe a lot entitled to get what they want. But when they're, using mind-altering substances like drugs or alcohol, they're going to feel that even more because they're going to be very scared. They're going to feel very scared and anxious inside when they don't have that fix, when they don't have that drink, when they can't self-medicate that way. So, you know, the loved ones of, of addicts are also very, very scared, especially with all of the overdoses that we're seeing now. We're in, in this epidemic of overdoses and fentanyl and opioids and all of this kind of stuff. And it could happen to anyone and families, all families know that. So if, if they've got an addict in their family, they know that anything could happen and they're just trying to keep everything okay. They're just trying to keep everything smooth. That's not always easy to do, no, right? I not. mean, you're walking on eggshells and, and you just don't yes. know when that addict goes off as yep. to what the violence, you know, could become, right? And, yeah. and the violence can be physical violence. It could be the addict pushing somebody or punching a hole through the wall or doing that kind of stuff. Um, the violence can also be verbal where... Um, Maybe a 35-year-old person is saying to their mother who won't do their laundry, I hate you, you're a terrible mother, and sounding like they're three, you know. But, <laughs> but people who are loved ones are often what we call in the addiction field codependent. It's a buzzword that we use. And my simple definition of codependency is when we put other people's needs ahead of our own on a fairly consistent basis. So our needs go on the back burner for a long time and we put everybody else's needs first. And that's not helpful for anybody. It's definitely not helpful for an addict. But what happens with, with people who 
you know, the, the other word I use for that is people pleaser. So the reason that people become people pleasers is that basically they hate conflict. They don't want any conflict. They've never learned how to deal with conflict. They don't know how to deal with somebody else's anger in a healthy way. They don't know how to deal with somebody else's frustration or any kind of disappointment or upset that somebody else might have. So they say yes when they don't really mean yes. They do things like give money to an addict when they know where that money's gonna go. They drive them to the liquor store or the drug dealer because they know where that where their loved one is is sitting next to them in the car, you know, and they don't want to say no because if they say no, they could be abused in some kind of way, and they just do anything they can to avoid that. That keeps the addict stuck in addiction; it doesn't help them get out of it at all. There's a lot to saying tough love, right? You know, when when an addict becomes an an addict. You know, I mean, it doesn't just happen in an instant, you know, it's no. that consistent, you know, all the time. So what's usually behind that? Is it that they feel victimized themselves to become an addict or, you know, what's, what's usually the tattletale signs, I guess, you know, to know that, whoa, this could be leading into that addiction, into addiction. zone? Yeah, it, it usually takes a while for and addiction to really build and grow, but it depends on the substance, if they're using substances. Addiction, like you said in the beginning, it comes in many forms. Um, it comes in, in mind-altering alcohol and drugs where the, where the brain actually gets altered. Um, it also comes with things like, things we call mood-altering, like shopping or gambling or smoking cigarettes or you know, watching too much television or playing too many video games, you know, that's not quite the same as a mind-altering addiction. But to me, addiction is addiction is addiction. And it's all for the same purpose. We just, you know, with our personalities and what's going on in our lives, we choose different things to become addicted to. But the basis underneath addiction is that we we don't like how we feel. And we basically don't like how we feel about ourselves and our lives. And we don't want to go there. We don't want to explore that. We don't want to feel it. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want anything to do with it. So I'm going to medicate myself somehow. I'm going to smoke a joint. I'm going to have a drink. I'm going to go spend too much money. I'm going to, you know, get myself in some kind of chaos so I don't have to look at the real chaos that's going on underneath it. So sense? it sure does. It, it really yeah. does. So do you find that someone that has that addictive behavior and, and is getting, you know, really seriously entwined in addiction that they have more than one addiction at the same time? Does that, yeah. does that usually happen? It does. It often happens. It doesn't have to happen. Sometimes people choose one thing and they just, they with that. Sometimes all they do is go to the casino. They may have a drink or two or smoke some cigarettes while they're there, if that's still happening in casinos. Um, but, but basically, they're focused on, on the poker. They're focused on the blackjack. They're focused on the gambling. But most people um, 
find a number of different things that they use to be able to not have to deal with how they're really feeling. And I think everybody's got some addictive behaviors. I, I've been clean and sober for a really long time now, but I have to watch out for chocolate, you know? And, uh, and I think we all have, we all have something that we go to when right. we don't want to feel something. Yeah, I'd have to say my go-to is ice cream, you know, and chocolate. There you go. You know? and- <laughs> yeah. It's when it becomes a problem that it's a problem. Right. Anything in moderation is good and, and can be healthy, right? But yep. uh, So they say. So they say. So <laughs> one other thing I'd like to ask you about addiction. Do you find it um, like hereditary? Like does it run in the genetics? You know, yeah. and passed down. Have you seen a lot of that? It's such a good question, and the answer is we don't know yet. Scientists have been studying this for years and years and years, and they still don't know the answer to this. The way that I, I do see a lot of it in families, but I don't know whether that's because it's genetic or whether it's because children learn what they learn at home and they carry it through their lives when they leave home, if they ever leave home. Um, so it's, it's really hard to say it could be genetic. It might be, it might not be for me though. And I'm going to say something that's a little bit provocative, if that's okay. Speak Um, away, my dear. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) For me, I believe that, that being in active addiction is a choice and being in active recovery is a choice. I don't think anybody decides, gee, I'm, I'm going to be an addict in my life. That's going to be fun. Let's do that. I don't think anybody makes the choice to become an addict. I know I didn't, and most people I know didn't. Um, I don't know anybody who did, in fact. But there comes a time in an addict's life when they're still in active addiction and they're using whatever it is that they're using, and it's becoming really problematic. We know, I can tell you this as an addict, we know when something is going wrong in our lives. We know that something's wrong with this picture. We look around at other people and we see that they have families, they're, you know, they're happy in their lives, they're working, they've got children that are successful and they have enough money and we're maybe under the bridge or terribly, terribly unhappy in our lives. And we know there's something wrong with this picture. And when we really get that hit of knowing that, that's the choice point. So at that point, we can either reach out for help, and there's a lot of help out there for addicts, not so much for their families, but there's a lot of help out there for addicts reaching out for help and changing this all around. Because it's a choice whether you're going to stay in active addiction or whether you're going to go into some kind of recovery. So when you look at the basic model of addiction that's been on the radar for years and years and years and years and years, it's the, it's the disease model that's practiced in the 12-step programs like Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous, which is where I got my start. It probably saved my life. But what 12-step programs teach 
is that we are powerless over our addiction. We will always be an addict. We have to say that kind of for the rest of our lives. That relapse is a normal, natural part of recovery. And I don't believe any of that. I, I, I am so glad you said that because that's the only thing that I didn't like about all of the anonymouses was exactly yeah. what you just said. Yeah. And, you know, so doing it the way you're doing it, you know, sounds like it's definitely the way to go because when, if an addict chooses like, okay, I'm, I'm making the choice without an intervention to say, okay, I'm done. Right. And um, then it's like, okay, it's time to make that choice. Working with the family has to be, you know, part of that so that when, when the addict comes back out, they know how to talk with them, how to act around them, how to be with them yes. so that they don't, so they don't feel like, you know, they're less than, right? Family members of addicts <clears throat> need to be worked with at the same time, I think, ideally, as we work with the addicts. And sometimes in my practice, sometimes we work with the family members for a while before the addict is ready to work with us. What happens in most traditional treatment rehab for, for addicts is that they go away to a program, like if it's residential, most of them are residential. There are some day programs where you live at home, but the residential ones where you pay, you know, upwards of 20, 30, 40, $50,000 for a month or two of being in treatment, you're, you pay that for your addict because you want to save their lives. You don't know what else to do. So you pay that. The addict goes in, maybe stays a couple of days, maybe leaves after that or gets kicked out. They go out and they drink or they go out and they use and they get kicked out. You don't get your money back if that happens in most places. Um, even when an addict goes through the whole program, and maybe make some wonderful changes and sees what they've been doing and really wants life to be better for them, they go back home to the same dysfunctional dynamics that were happening in the family before they left for treatment because nobody's been working with the family. It's not that the family is bad or, you know, they're not trying to do anything wrong. They're trying to do everything right but nobody's working with them to change what they're doing, to change any of the enabling that they're doing. So the, the, the addict goes back home, same kind of stuff happens, and generally they relapse. And the family says, well, we paid all this money. What do you mean they're relapsed? How can that happen? <laughs> well, that's how it happens. So yeah. some places have you know, maybe weekends for the family to come and maybe learn a little bit about you know, get some education about addiction, but they're probably going to get the 12-step model, the medical model of your addict is powerless, has a disease. Oh, I forgot that part. Has a disease and, uh, you know, will probably relapse along the way. That's what they'll be told in most places. 
that's not good for a family to hear. That's well, not no. good for an addict to be told. It's dangerous, really, to tell an addict that. Well, oh, I have yeah, a disease. It, I can't help it. Yeah, yeah it, it gives them an excuse, a way that's, out. And right. it, it's, it's like, oh, well, why am I even going to do this? Oh, I'm just going to go right back and do it all over again. So, yeah. but, uh, you know, this pay is... for me to be in a nice, posh, cushy place for a while. That's fine. I'll go. <laughs> yeah. 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 We could all have a vacation like that. Uh -huh. Candace, this has been so <clears throat> awesome. And uh, you really lightened, you know, me and some of the different areas, you know, uh, about addictions and things. So thank you so much for sharing. It's great uh, information, words it's of wisdom. It's my pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to take a short break. And when we come okay. back, Nicole is going to uh, ask you a few questions and get to know a little bit more about your journey. Deeper and deeper into my soul, into who I was, to the point where I could really understand who I am as a person. Thank you, Pam, so much. I just uh, am changing as we speak. To condense it into actionable pieces that I could fit the whole thing in my head. Um, this workshop was really helpful. I'm really grateful to Pan for his skill set, his empathy, his experience, and his ability to help us all on our spiritual path. and welcome back to 360 Wisdom Speaks. Candace Plator calling in from BC, Canada, has been sharing some unbelievable morsels all about addiction and working with the families of addiction. But now Nicole is going to talk to Candace about how she got to where she is today and what her journey looks like. Well, you know, Candace, you and Beverly were sharing so much great information and, you know, you were so open, even in your bio, pretty much how you got here, why you started helping others and serving others, but allowing them not to be enabled or allowing the families to enable the, the addicted uh, family member or them, even themselves or become enabled. How, you boost others up and how did yeah. how did you get here let's uh, if you would share a bit of your journey mm. well uh, it's just really interesting what you say about how i boost people up and i really appreciate that because the journey started in a pretty low place where i was not boosted up at all um back in the early 70s um i was on a cross-country trip cross-continent trip actually from Calgary, Canada to Maryland on the East Coast. Um, and it was a car trip and we stopped for lunch one day and all was well until a couple of hours later when I became violently ill. And I had never really been sick before. I'd had the usual childhood stuff, but I, I was pretty healthy and I became so, so sick. And I thought it was food poisoning. And we all know what those symptoms are. Try being in a Volkswagen van, crossing the country with food poisoning symptoms. Um, so I just basically thought it would go away, you know, but it never did. And it just got worse and worse and worse. And by the time 
we ended up where we were going, I was spending all day, every day in bed. I was so, so sick and weak. And um, I was in my early 20s. I had no idea what was going on for me. I went to some doctors who told me that it was basically all in my head and I should just kind of get over it. Really helpful stuff. Um, to, you know, in their defense, what I eventually was diagnosed with was Crohn's disease, which today most people know what Crohn's disease is. Many people know somebody with Crohn's disease, but at that time, it was really a new kid on the block disease. and and nobody really knew what it was. The doctors didn't know what it was. It, it, it kind of hadn't even really been named yet. Uh, people knew what colitis was and it was a similar disease, but it wasn't the same. So I was, uh, you know, I was going to doctors and I'm, I'm this young 20 year old and I'm crying and I'm in pain and I'm just a mess and what, and they didn't know what to do for me. So what they did was they just threw a lot of addictive medication at me. They didn't know it was addictive. Addiction wasn't on the radar. So they're giving me Valium and they're giving me codeine and Oxycontin and morphine and Demerol and as much of it as I wanted for week after week and month after month and year after year. And I took it all. And oh, anybody's goodness. body would become addicted. I mean, it helped. It helped the symptoms of Crohn's, helped me feel better. And I started smoking pot. I had smoked a little bit in university and, and it wasn't a problem. And I started smoking it and um, inhaling, inhaling it more and more and more. And uh, it became a problem. I became addicted to that. And yes, you can become addicted to pot. Um, <clears throat> so. The other thing that I'll say about all of these substances is that they're all depressants in the human system. They're not like cocaine, which is an upper. They're depressants. And I was taking so much of it for about 15 years. I was taking all of these opioids. I was taking benzodiazepines. It's, it's fortunate that I'm still here because it's not a good combination of medications. Oh my gosh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they're contraindicated actually, um, and smoking a lot of pot. So um, by the end of that 14, 15 year time that I was basically an opioid addict, um, I became so depressed that and I didn't have any idea what was happening to me because again, it wasn't on the radar. We're looking at 1987, 1986, 87. Nobody was really talking about addiction at that point, certainly not the way they are today. And I had no idea what was going on. All I knew was that I was getting to the point where I didn't want to live anymore. I was done having Crohn's. I was done feeling depressed. I was done crying all the time. I was done and I was at work one day. I lay down to have a little bit of a rest because I wasn't feeling well, which is, was what most days were like for me. And I started thinking about all the pills that I had in my apartment. And if I timed it right, nobody would find me in time and I could just take a whole bunch of pills and that would be that. 
And it scared me because I was thinking of actually doing that. I got really scared. And instead of taking the pills, I reached out for help. I had no idea what I was doing, but I called the Vancouver Crisis Center and somebody at the other end of the line saved my life. Oh gosh, we're glad they me. did. Thank you. They respected me. They listened to me. The, I, I, I think it was a woman, but I'm not even sure. Um, you know, said to me, she said, you have a choice here. You can either kill yourself or you can get some help. Nobody had ever said that to me before. It's like, oh, okay. So I ended up signing myself into uh, a psych ward in one of our hospitals. And I was there for about a month. It's like, don't give me my clothes back or I'm going to go out and kill myself. So, so I stayed and that was, that was a trip. Um, but I, I got what I needed. I got the counseling I needed, uh, at least to begin my journey. And I met a couple of other people who, uh, were in the psych ward who were trying to stay off alcohol and drugs. And they were going to a 12 step meeting across the street every day at noon. And so I started going with them and it was just this amazing experience where I would just sit and cry most of the meeting because I was so depressed and, and people would come and hug me and they would say, keep coming back. You know, that's not what I got in my family of origin. Uh, that's not the kind of thing that I was ever told. So when, when I heard, I just, I just kept going back and I kept going back and it was one day at a time, one day at a time, just like it is for everybody who's trying to stay clean. Oh, hundred percent. And one day at a time one day at a time, you know, it morphed into a year. And then one year morphed into two years. And I made decisions every single day. I made the choice not to use. I had surgery, major abdominal surgery while I was, um, I was about eight months clean. And uh, I woke up on a morphine drip, even though they knew I was an addict because it I told them, so they put it in my chart. I wake up from the surgery. I'm in a morphine drip that I can control with the push of a button. So again, I had to make a choice. Am I going to stay on this morphine or am I going to find another way to deal with it? And I found another way to deal with it with ice packs, extra strength Tylenol, and a lot of screaming and moaning for a little while. And then it got better. And then it got better. And I wasn't in pain anymore. And I hadn't given up my clean time and I was able to take my year cake, you know, and it was just choice after choice after choice. I don't want that life anymore. I'm going to do whatever I can to not have that life anymore because it'll kill me. I mean, I won't have a life. A hundred percent. And and we're so thankful that you did because you can share this with us and so many of us. And it is addiction is something that is is uh, near and dear to my heart and, and, and it is within my family. Um, and unfortunately, with, for my daughter, it's on both sides of the family uh, yeah. in the addiction. And so being the black sheep of the family, not being the addicted person, it was hard to understand not where I couldn't even develop a habit for many years, because to me, that was also a part and a form of an addiction, doing something consistently over and over again. And it could be. Right, yeah. right. And so being scared of even that and living mm -hmm. in the moment, but learning that there's, there's boundaries and strategies and goals and 
doing that in a healthy manner. But when you talked before about the families who need the care as well, and yes. when we teach this, it makes so much sense because in I worked in juvenile hall and I was a guard in juvenile hall, I was a juvenile institutional officer in um, California. And we would have kids that came in all the time consistently over and over again. And, you know, after a certain point, it is a choice that you start to make as you become an adult because you know the pattern. You understand that if you do A and B and you mix them together, the consequences are C. Yeah. But we would have parents that just wouldn't show up, wouldn't be part of their healing, and the courts never mandated that. And the problem is, is that you don't really want the court involved in everything in your life. You want to be able to take some responsibility and having parents take some of that responsibility. And that's why for holidays, the children kind of committed themselves because we were their family. We guided them. We disciplined them. We fed them. They got a shower. They got clothes. They got support and they got clean and they had friends. So there was commonality within the healing over, you know, with, within the, the, the juvenile institution and to see that that is the support. And, and for me, it was getting help personally on a level to say, hey, you know what, at this point, it is no longer my responsibility. It is my mother's, my father's, and my daughter's responsibility to heal. If they want to heal, they need to make that choice, yeah. you know, and to always clean up the chaos. But, you know, you have that and, it, and it's hard to break away from that as a parent because it's like, well, I want to be part of my daughter's life. And the only way to be part of her life is to to support her. Well, you, you don't support them by allowing them to somebody, bring. Yeah. You, you don't support somebody in their addiction. You support 100%. somebody in their recovery. And that's what has to change in these families. They're supporting the addiction. And, it's you know, I think Beverly was talking about tough love. Tough love has gotten a very bad rap. It's a great thing. Tough love, <laughs> tough love is love. It is absolutely love. And, and my program is based on it. And I don't think there is a more loving thing that anybody can do for an addict than to say to them, we love you so much. We love yes. you so much. And it's breaking our hearts to see you do this. And we just can't, won't support this anymore because we don't want you to be in this life so we're not going to support you in your addiction but when yeah, you decide to go when you get, decide to go into some kind of recovery yes. we will do whatever we can to help you and and we're not going to support you in your addiction because that's how much we love you oh yes that's yes and yes and, I, and, and, and and sharing that to walk away and be able to, even for me personally, it's become healing to yeah. be able to establish those boundaries and walk That's away right. from the situation and say, I'm here to help and I'm open and honest with you. But, you know, the other thing is, is that when you decide to do tough love, it's also other friends and family members that may intervene and get into the middle of that. And to be able to say, you know what, as a parent, I have to do what's best for me to heal myself. And I'll be there when they need to land. And they're ready to get that When they're help. willing to land, when they're ready and willing to yes. land. We, we have to be there. You see, addicts need their families to be with them, to be supportive of them, but they need their families to be healthy. 
So the families need to get healthy. The families need to learn how to stop enabling and how to actually help. And once that happens, the addict sits up and takes notice and sort of goes, uh-oh, I might have to change something here or I could lose everything. And that's a wonderful thing for an addict to feel, for an addict to think. The best thing ever. Oh, 100% for them to feel and think and, and have their own feelings and thoughts and, and, and learn that it's okay to feel. And it's, it's okay. okay to, yeah. It's, it's okay, okay to, to feel, feel and heal, yeah. <clears throat> and it's also okay to be on the receiving end of boundaries, healthy, respectful boundaries. It's okay for them to get some boundaries from the people who love them. It's not a punishment. It's a consequence. Otherwise, we set people up to try to deal with a world that doesn't really exist out there. Right. No consequences. Right. I don't know anybody who doesn't have consequences. 100%. And even healers, showing healers, and that's what Beverly and I have, uh, do with this show is 360 Wisdom Speaks, is we want healers to understand that as you heal, and whether you're using a modality of Reiki, or you're using a modality to work your intuition, um, or you're doing some life coaching with people, we want you to understand as the person that is mentoring others, you have to be able to feel, heal, and have boundaries and understand there are consequences for the decisions you make. And that yes. you're here to right. allow your clients to heal themselves and you're not doing it for them. And yeah. so you well, can succeed as the coach. And I think that's very something that we share is that integral part of being the adult in the room and having self-leadership to have experience yeah. and awareness. And, and you can't do anybody's healing for them. It just, life doesn't work that way. You can't heal somebody else. You can support somebody in their own healing, but you can't heal somebody else and you can't get sick enough to help somebody else get well, you know? So it's a case of how can I be healthy? How can I stay healthy and centered and grounded and self-caring and all of those things and have somebody who's an addict in my life. How can I do that? I need to learn how to do that. And it can be done. It's, it's wonderful. It can be done. Oh, absolutely. It can be done. And, and we talk about that on all levels. And that's what we want to support people, you know, uh, holistically, mind, body, and soul. You have to right. be the decision maker. You have to be strong for you and for others. But you have to be able to be vulnerable and accept help. But that's when you're ready. And, right. and no, you can't wave a magic wand. And boy, have I tried. I want to wave my magic wand oh. until I hit somebody with a magic wand. So listen, you're going to heal now, right? You can't do that either, right? You can't force it onto them. And it, it's, it's such a great awakening for all of us to realize that instead of being activated or angry or in despair, that as we start to heal ourselves, that is the greatest tool we have is to be and lead by the example. And you, Candace, are a great example for others to say that I have healed myself in many different ways and that you yeah. can too, and, and to be that foundation and that support for them and to have real talk and to say, hey, you know what? 
we need to be honest with one another and it helps to you want to be in that truth and we healers talk about being and speaking our truth but it's in a loving truth and an honest truth that you need to speak and they need to hear in that love language that we can all share and create and, and to have that that is it, it is, is a wonderful thing to do that and thank you so much for being here i'm going to bring beverly back in because i know she has a few more questions for you okay wow this has been so enlightening i'm just sitting back here taking this all in it's like oh what a beautiful beautiful share today and you definitely speak wisdom and that's what the show is all about and that's what the audience is here to get and they definitely got a handful today so we're going to give them a few more little morsels of wisdom what can you leave the audience with just three tips that they can begin to incorporate in their life right now to maybe help themselves if they're an addict or to help support someone else in their recovery if you're an addict and you would like your life to change there really is help for you. There's help for you. And if I could do this, you can do this. So that's what I say to you. Please, the world needs you. And maybe the world needs you to start working with other addicts. Maybe the world needs you to share your own experience and strength and love. That this hard-earned wisdom with other people, we need you. So if you are an addict and you want to have a different life, please reach out. If you're the family of an addict, same thing. You're going to have to change yourself first in most cases. That's the good news and the bad news. Because it's usually not the addict that reaches out for help. If the addict is being enabled, if you're going to do everything for the addict, you know, adopt me and do everything for me, please. <laughs> if you're going to do everything for an addict, why should they change anything they're doing? On paper, they've got it made, except that they hate themselves inside and they hate their lives. And that's what you're kind of contributing to. So what you need to do is learn the difference between helping an addict and enabling an addict, stop the enabling and start the helping. Um, and also know that when you do this, the addict that you love so dearly is not gonna come to you and say, thank you so much for setting healthy boundaries for me. It's gonna be far from that. They're gonna get mad. They're gonna get scared they're going to probably balk at this and you're going to learn how to stand your ground. This is what we teach at Love With Boundaries. My company name is Love With Boundaries. And we teach you how to set boundaries, how to language your boundaries, how to figure out what your boundaries are to begin with, then how to set them, how to language them, and how to maintain them. Because if you're not going to maintain them, don't bother setting them. And what your consequences are if we set a boundary with you and you bulldoze over our boundary, this is what's going to happen. And you say that from a loving place, from a, 
non-charged moment. It doesn't have to be in anger. So you learn how to do those things and understand that the addict isn't going to jump up and down for joy that you're doing this, but it's the best thing you'll ever do for them and for your own self-respect. Wow, that is so awesome. What great words of wisdom. Again, she did it. And we <laughs> thought it would end and it never will. And one oh, thing I, I have can one say, more Candace, very quick thing. One more very quick go thing. Go ahead. Shoot it out there. Whether, whether you're an addict or you're the loved one of an addict, please don't give up. Don't ever, ever, ever give up. Don't give up. Keep trying. Awesome. And you know what? We are so blessed to have you here with us today because you made the choice to say, I want something different. You reached out, you stayed with it, you stood strong and look what you're doing now. The beautiful work that you're doing now is to get that support in that family unit that is so, so needed. Yes. And that's why you didn't leave the planet. And that's so, one of the reasons for sure. <laughs> that's a big yep. part of that reason. Yep. And yep. now we had you here and whew, that's a blessing to us. It's a blessing to our audience. So I want to thank, thank you. you again so much, Candice, for being here. It was a special treat today. Nicole, thank you for joining us as well because I know addiction is near and dear to your heart. Um, I, I've been blessed that I don't have that. I mean, I've got some addictions in the family, but nothing that you could like, you know, <laughs> it's just amazing. So thank you again, Candace, for being here. And we just might have to get you back. So I'd love to come back. Thank well, you. Well, there you go, then it's an open invitation. So if anyone out there wants to reach you, all of your stats and information are going to be attached to the video and to the audio. Okay. So if you have someone that has an addiction, or if you are the one who has the addiction, reach out to Candace. Yeah. She will get you pointed in the right direction. So thank you again, everyone. This is 360 Wisdom Speaks saying, until we meet again. Deeper and deeper into my soul, into who I was, to the point where I could really understand who I am. I'm really grateful to Pan for his skill set, his empathy, his experience. Condense it into actionable pieces that I could fit the whole thing in my head. Um, this workshop was really helpful.